Hey, thanks for tuning in to this episode of You Really Shouldn't Have. Just a quick warning to say the following episode does contain some strong language, which some listeners may find offensive. Thanks and enjoy the episode. Hello and welcome to You Really Shouldn't Have with me, James Warwick. The podcast where each week I sit down with a different guest to discuss their career as well as the worst gift they've ever been given. Joining me this week is comedian and host of the Comedy Arcade podcast, Vic Slayton. She dropped by to discuss her career in comedy, her game show podcast, and of course, the worst gift she's ever been given. So Vix, welcome to the show. Thanks so much for joining me. Oh, thanks for having me. It, like, it's a cause I feel very strongly about, <laughs> presence. So um, I'm ready. Very good. Well, we'll get to the bad gifts a little bit later. But to start off, I wanted to go back to the beginning of your comedy career because I understand the start of it was slightly unconventional. <laughs> yeah, it wasn't that long ago, actually. I've only been going two years and one of those was in lockdown, so I'm not sure it counts. <laughs> <laughs> I do the Zoom gigs. Is anyone listening? Are they even, have they got me on mute? I was going to ask know. about the Zoom gigs because I've, I've attended a Zoom gig as, as a punter. And I mean, I felt awkward because especially if I didn't find the joke funny, I'm sat in silence. Everyone else is in silence. It, it feels like they're doing, they're doing badly, but they might not be. It's terrible. It's really harrowing. Like that's the one good thing about being in a dark, dingy pub. If your joke doesn't land, you can just imagine that they're silent laughers. But when they are in your face in your eyeline for 40 minutes you know the writing's on the wall there it's pretty yeah it's harrowing but <laughs> yeah it's um it's exciting to be doing it because I was really nervous of public speaking to the point that I was phobic a couple of years ago oh. and I was exactly the kind of person that goes to a conference and bitches and moans when there are only male speakers that is my thing I'll sit there and I'll go, ah, oh, male, pale and stale, men again, is it? But I was also the person that got invited to conferences to speak and then cowardly turned them down. So um, <laughs> I was part of the problem when I wanted to be part of the solution. So I signed up to do a stand-up comedy skills course for corporate. So it was like a workshop that was designed to use the skills that you use in stand-up to be a better business person, a better speaker. It was run by this foundation called Funny Women that's a not-for-profit it's all about raising women's voices so it was very much in the spirit of what I wanted to do and um yeah I liked it <laughs> and I didn't just like it in a kind of maybe I'll do some presentation at work but I was still really scared of um of doing it like I was able to do it in the safe space surrounded by other women who were also a bit nervous but I didn't know if I would ever be able to do anything beyond it so I did that cowards thing that you do when you sort of want to do something but don't want to have the responsibility for it and I put something on Facebook and on Twitter saying hey guys looking at doing some open mic comedy who can help me and no one could so I was like well great I've clearly done all I can about this <laughs> this is me I can tick this off this is not meant to be and um then the comedian Mark Watson tweeted me back and said he was doing a marathon show for charity and would I like to learn the art of stand-up for charity as part of the show wow. and when when someone like that asks you to do something like that you've got to do it haven't yeah, you? you can't say no really you can't go back then no it would be well embarrassing to be like yeah I I'm a big fan of your work but I'm just gonna I'm just going to decline. Is that cool? Like, Stick it all over social media. Like, oh, can anyone help me with a gig? And then you get offered a gig by someone pretty well known. And you go, nah, it's all right. Yeah, not that gig. 
And yeah, so I put up a little just giving page and I raised about 700 pounds in a day because none of my friends and family thought I was good for it. So yeah, joke was on them when I did it. It was so scary though. Yeah, I was going to say, how was that first gig? Well, it was at the Pleasance Theatre, which is an institution for comedy anyway. So I'd been there to see gigs, but I'd never been in gigs before. And I was there for the full, it was 26.2 hours because it was like the time mimicked a marathon. And um, yeah, so I was there for that whole time. And when I calculated that time, I was like, oh, I've been up for like 24 hours before. It's no problem. I forgot that it started at nine at night. So I had to do a full day at work first. (laughs) (laughs) So yeah, I did my full day at work. And right until I got a taxi there, because I thought if I got the tube, I'd probably bottle it and just end up coming home. So I was like, if the tube is delayed, I'll just take that as fate and I'll just leave. So I got a taxi there. And um, I thought Mark had forgotten because he had all these charity events going on. And I was one of about a thousand things. And it got to about one in the morning and I started to settle in and enjoy the show. I was like, I haven't been called. He's forgotten. Um, but no, it was on and I did it. So he called me up onto the stage a few times, gave me these little tasks to do. So Ian Stone, the comedian, gave me a workshop on material which was wild. Rufus Hound wrote me a set I've still got in my notebook. It was just (laughs) the surrealist day. And it was so, it was a monumental psychological thing for me because it was something I never thought I'd get over. I didn't think I'd be comfortable speaking in front of six colleagues. So the idea that I'd gone from making myself physically sick at the thought of presenting to my work colleagues to being on stage in the Pleasance in front of a hundred people, including comedians that I really, really loved it, yeah, it felt like a huge deal. And I came out at the end of it and like something in me had changed and I wanted to talk to people about it. But to other people, it just sounded like nonsense. It sounded like hipster nonsense. <laughs> so I went into work all excited. I was like, guys, I've had this epiphany. I'm going to do comedy. It was amazing. It was this formative experience. No one was interested. <laughs> and by that point, I'd been awake for like 55 hours as well. So I thought I was saying that, but for all I know, I could have just been going and shaking. But <laughs> yeah. And after that, I'd met um, a comedian called Tom Turk who ran a night and he booked me for my first gig two weeks later. So amazing. It's amazing. I'm interested that you told your work colleagues as well, because I was going to ask if you did, because a lot of things, I mean, I I haven't told my work colleagues about this podcast. I mean, I started this during lockdown. I've been working from home since like last March and I just never thought to mention it. I was like, they're not going to care. I just won't mention it. So I'm still waiting for the day that one of them happens to stumble across one of these episodes and goes, there's this guy on Spotify that sounds just like you. Well, that's because you're cooler than me. I'm just desperate for attention (laughs) and I can't help showing off. So (laughs) we're very different people <laughs> now it's been a while obviously since the comedy clubs have been open you've been able to do the live gigs as as you remember doing them but what what's been the most interesting gig or most memorable gig for you besides the one with mark obviously your first gig was very memorable but have, have you had a few interesting audience members that you've had to sort of take care of I've been quite lucky. I haven't been directly heckled. Like the worst gig I did was in Croydon. And I've got this story, which is based on a true story about how I got run over by a bike on Dalston High Street. And I started with that. And that was the only thing they laughed at. And they didn't laugh at the punchline of the joke. They The only thing they laughed at was the idea of me being run over by a bike. Like that was, they loved it. And not a single laugh afterwards. And it was like an hour's train journey to get there. And then I had to spend the whole of the journey back from Croydon, 
staring at myself in the reflection in the glass, pondering all my life choices. (laughs) They hated me. (laughs) Just could not change their minds. And by the end of the 10 minutes, because I was on for 10, which was agonising, I hated them. So fair play. Don't go back to Croydon. There you go. People in Croydon. She's not coming back. She's not I'm coming not back. coming back. You blew it, Croydon. <laughs> you mentioned earlier about going to conferences and it being quite male dominated. And I wanted to actually touch on that with you from a comedy point of view. Is it still sort of a male dominated environment or do you think it's a bit more of an even split these days? It's still quite box ticky. And I think if you look at the TV shows just over Christmas, for example, so like Big Fat Quiz of the Year, um, it's three male comedians to one female comedian and two women. That seems to be the formula. <laughs> so you can have it's the same with um, the charity Bake Off, three comedians, Catherine Ryan and two just just famous women. And I don't understand what they think will happen if three comedian female comedians get together it's the same with university because the university challenge christmas special there was one female comedian and just two high profile women why (laughs) give us a chance (laughs) i'm with you i'm with i i I don't know why that would be there's obviously somebody somebody high up has decided that's the format but it's It's, uh, because i did some because my day job is pr so i did some consumer research on it you know the kind of hokum research that you do that you read like oh 10% 10% of the UK have never owned a pair of shoes, that kind of. <laughs> so I, I did that with some questions about comedy and um, it was quite disappointing reading because I asked like 2000 people who the funniest person they know was. And a lot of men said themselves, not so many women, but a lot of women thought that men were just generally funnier. And it's one of those things where you think of yourself from the position of a TV company and for the people that do have a view a lot of people strongly think men are funnier but for the people that think women are funnier they're also more open-minded about men so with that in mind maybe they're just giving the people broadly what they think they want which is yeah it's a conundrum to get into but it's like if I was a booker for that and I knew most people thought men were the funniest and some people thought women were funny and some people, men and women, thought women weren't funny at all. I don't know who I'd put on my show. When you go to book your shows, are you? is it more female focused in terms of a lineup or is it an equal split? Yeah, it's. Um, I found loads of funny women on the circuit because I did 100 gigs in a year because a male promoter told me I couldn't say I was a comedian until I'd done 100 gigs. So I am a petty person. So I thought, right, fine, I'll get them done then. And we'll talk about it in a year's time. And so I saw a lot of comedy, um, a lot. (laughs) And I think there's a bit of a problem with how many women are there to start with, because a lot of women that I've spoken to who know that I do it, because again, like I said, I love attention. So I talk about this all the time. And um, a lot of my female mates will say, I'd love to do it, but I want to make sure that I'm ready and that's not something that male friends have ever said. Like male friends will ask me outright at the end of a gig, how can I get five minutes on the next gig? Like they see something they want, they're willing to give it a go. Whereas a lot of my female friends, and I can't speak for all women, um, even though sometimes I'm the only woman, woman on a show. So technically I represent all women. Um, but certainly the women that I've met are more hesitant because they're worried they'll be terrible. And that doesn't seem to be necessarily something that the men I meet on the circuit are conditioned to think. They go in expecting to be good. And yeah, they just, whereas the women that you meet who are on open mic have this so much more polished and more rehearsed because I think 
they just yeah they're just in a league of their own so I have booked loads of really cool women for my gigs it's not a choice necessarily it's not I'm going to do all female nights because another sad thing that I've noticed is if you do women's comedy nights typically you only get women in the audience oh really (laughs) yeah because it's deemed as like I think people expect to be women's business but it's a hard problem to solve and like it's something that I complain about but unlike with the conference thing I don't necessarily think I've got the power on my own to solve it (laughs) but I do a panel show podcast now again no one has died letting a woman do a panel show so that in a way is contributing to statistics but yeah I do a female-led panel show and a lot of my panels are all women but they're all brilliant and it's not me booking just women. It's me thinking of people that I would like to chat to. And they just so happen to be. <laughs> I was going to come onto the podcast, the Comedy Arcade, really been enjoying it. Tell me a bit more about the show and how the idea came about. I'm a massive Radio 4 comedy devotee. So for me, they are the gold standard for a panel yeah. show. Just a minute, the news quiz. I'm sorry, I haven't a clue. They're the shows that I listen to and they're the shows that I kind of aspire to be on. Like when people used to ask me what my dream job would be, I would say Radio 4 Comedy Commentator. Nice, nice. <laughs> Even before I got into comedy, that was my dream job, just going on, giving my opinions in a way that was in, sounded intelligent and was funny, was the absolute pinnacle for me. So it didn't feel out of reach as an audio format because that's how I like to experience panel shows I probably listen to more of those than I watch myself but it also came from a because I wanted to do a zoom or like an online experience but all of my friends and all the promoters that I knew were all trying to do just basically exactly the same open mic format and just slapping that onto Facebook or YouTube and the competition is fierce Whereas everybody used to have their own little patch. So if you ran an East London night, because I've got a night in Limehouse um, near where I live. If you run an East London night, East London people will come. So if it's like a person like Sarah Keyworth or Jen Brister or Mark Zone and I had on <laughs> back in the day, <laughs> we've, we've all learned a few things um, in lockdown about each other. But uh, you're, you know, the, the appeal for that is that it's local. Mm. So you'll go and see them. So they might be gigging every night of the week in a different borough of London and there's no crossover. But when it's online, all of a sudden you can go to every gig that you want. So me booking someone like Sarah Keyworth for Live at Limehouse, if she's done big in Walthamstow or out of the box in New Malden the night before and the night before the night before, then her fans may have seen her there. So they don't need to see her at my show. Mm. So I was seeing that. And that's when you've got pros on, when it's just open mic. (laughs) Again, when it's not you going to your local to laugh at people who are awful and be surprised by people who are good and you're not at the pub and you're not a few drinks in. I genuinely don't know. I want to meet the people that go to open mics online and ask them why. (laughs) Because (laughs) when you're not drinking, how do you live through someone who's who's polishing their work, who's starting out? Because I was terrible when I started. I don't want to sit through me. And I don't want to sit through other people who are as bad as me. And when you can just close your laptop, why would you stay? (laughs) I mean, you're a hostage when you're in a pub, aren't you? It's rude to get up and walk out. But on Zoom, you just got to click a button. Who are these heroes that are sitting through these shows? We need to find them. It's not me. And I felt guiltier and guiltier because even when it was live open, I wouldn't go to a show that I wasn't in. So then when people were optimistically 
adding me on Facebook into groups going, do you want to come to this? I was like, no, absolutely not. Um, I want to know who these people are. So I wanted to do something because I miss performing, but it had to be something that I was basically pitching it to people like me. I wanted it to be something that people like me would want to watch. And I noticed that when comedians are doing podcasts, because they're quite open form and a lot of them are just chat, there's no real rigor to it. It's easy to fall into telling the same stories over and over again or versions of the same stories. So I was listening to podcasts from my favorite people and hearing them tell the same story in 20 different ways. And that's, you know, I enjoyed them every time. But I was like, what if the comedians that I love answered different questions? What if we heard about what they were like in school or what their worst job was or like the worst purchase decision they've ever made? These are questions that I hadn't heard answered. So I thought, right, that's what I'm going to do. I'm going to make it like, so it was called comedy roulette at the time, but that was a bit too aggressive, I think, because it wasn't, it wasn't very dangerous. It was just a chat. <laughs> Sounded like a drinking game. It does. <laughs> but um, see, so yeah, I put a load of different topics in a bingo ball. <laughs> And um, whatever topic was spat out, they all had the list in advance. They knew broadly what we were going to talk about, but you kn- you didn't know what was going to come up. Oh, and so they had the really, list really of fun. all of them. They had the list of everything that was all in the 30. bowl. Got you. Yeah. So they knew they knew what wasn't going to come up, but it was up to them how much they prepared. And very few people even read the email. <laughs> so I start every because I still do it now with the podcast. I start every episode with. So who knows the rules? And, and no it one is, does. I mainly do it for fun to watch the horror on people's faces. <laughs> <laughs> well, it's a fantastic show. Make sure everybody listens. Check it out. Comedy Arcade. Of course, there is there is one question that, that you ask on your show that we ask on this show as well, which is what is the worst gift you've ever been given? So over to you. There's a real spectrum, to be honest, because there's like different levels of bad gifts, isn't there? There's the gift that reveals that someone knows nothing about you. Mm-hmm. And it's not a bad gift, but it's just you've really, you've gone all out. You've found something on Etsy, you've had it engraved, and then you get like a basket from the body shop and you want to throw it in their faces. <laughs> um, so there's those. Uh, <laughs> That, that's happening less and less. People now who don't like me enough to be thoughtful just don't buy me anything. And do you know what? I'm happy with that. It's fine. Why be disingenuous? It's the same with people who just write happy birthday on your Facebook. Don't bother. Don't phone in. If you can't get a gift for me, fuck off. Like, I, I find less and less people write on your Facebook. Eh? The, the more the years go up, like the older I get, the less people are writing on Facebook. Yeah, I know. And it's hard to tell if your popularity is in decline or if more and more people are realizing the ethical implications and are coming off. Like, I like to think the latter because yes. it comforts me. But, uh, my dad went through this really weird phase of buying me a Hulk fist soap on a rope. I think I had one of those three years in a row. At the foot, yeah, this is probably the worst gift actually I've ever been given. Um, oh, actually, it's a tiebreaker. So that is just the first time he got it. I wasn't sure if he was just being innocent because he knows I like geeky stuff. But then he got me it for a second year in a row. So I've got two. And then the third year I was braced to receive one again. I don't know where he was getting them from, but he clearly got a job lot. And he apologized <laughs> that it wasn't, it was like a unicorn soap on a rope. And he apologized that it wasn't a fist. So he's like playing a game. He's playing his own game. Like he's trolling me. It is the weirdest troll you can possibly imagine. But um, yeah, I've talked, I talked about this because it is a category on my podcast. The worst gift I've ever been given was a Valentine's gift from a guy that I was not very interested in being with anymore. And he had teased that he was going to give me the gift at Valentine's Day dinner 
And I was so terrified that it was an engagement ring that I could not enjoy my meal. And it wasn't a great meal anyway. I think it was like, it was the height of sophistication for a Cardiff girl who was like 19 or 20, but like old Orleans in Cardiff, not peak sophistication, certainly not where I'd like to be proposed to. And, um, yeah, my dinner was ruined. I was just like, cause this box was on the table emanating horror and all social awkwardness. I was sat there the whole meal. Yeah, because he just put it on the top as like, oh, you're going to love this. And I couldn't stop looking at it. It was like making eye contact with me, even though it didn't have eyes. Like this horrible, <laughs> like like you see on a computer game when it's like a nasty side quest that you've got to do. It was glowing with horror. And it was a bracelet. Uh, oh. <laughs> so I might as well have just enjoyed my steak. <laughs> but i've got to say i think that was probably the worst gift i've ever given because um that's when i really knew for sure that was the end of the relationship when you've spent two hours not listening and pondering how you can politely say no in a public place to somebody who's proposing you really do question all the choices that bring you there Vic's wrapping up, if you could go right back to the beginning of your comedy career and give yourself a gift to help to get where you are now, what gift would you give yourself? I probably would have give, maybe given myself the gift of chill because when I first started doing comedy, I wanted all my friends to come because basically I wanted to make sure there were people in the room that would laugh <laughs> each time. So my first five or six gigs were heavily attended by five to ten of my rubbernecking friends were they there to support me or were they there to check if I was shit I don't know like <laughs> I'm, I don't want to ask them but all of those friends saw me at my absolute worst and now I can't coax them to go to my good gigs so I kind of wished <laughs> I'd wait until I was a bit good maybe got the terrible ones out of the way before there were 10 people there that knew me and would remember them for the rest of their lives so um yes patience is probably what I've given myself <laughs> fantastic and finally where can people find out more about you what you do and the podcast I think Twitter is my best um my best work that's where I, I do all my funniest stuff. I test a lot of jokes on Twitter as well before I put them into my sets. So if you see something that looks like, oh, shit, is, did this really happen? It's probably not. It is probably me testing material. <laughs> I used to do it at work at the kettle. People stopped going for tea with me because I'd just be hanging around there going, don't you think it's weird when plates are this size and they're like, you're doing a bit? And I'm like, I'm doing a bit. I'm really sorry. <laughs> was it funny though? Like they just couldn't enjoy their cup of tea in peace. So I was just following people around. Uh, but yes, so I'm at PRVix on Twitter. It's at comedy underscore arcades is the Twitter account for that. And it's loads of like little videos and me badgering previous guests to engage me. <laughs> it's, it's, yeah, it's a, it's a beautiful thing to watch. If you think you're not being chilled with people, you can go over there and reassure yourself that you've got more chill than me. Um, yeah. And it's also on pretty much anywhere you can find podcasts, the comedy arcade, so Acast, iTunes. It's not called iTunes anymore, is it? It's Apple podcast, um, Spotify, pretty much everywhere you can find them. So Fantastic. I'm very Googleable. I have a big digital footprint. <laughs> very good none of it good <laughs> all of it ill-advised <laughs> well Vix thanks so much for joining the show it's been great to have you here oh, it's been an absolute joy thank you for having me thanks again for listening to this episode of You Really Shouldn't Have be sure to subscribe to us on your chosen podcast service to make sure you never miss another episode you can find us on both Twitter and Instagram at Bad Gifts Pod as well as online at badgiftspod.com <laughs>